This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. You know, prior to this water crisis on Oahu, the Navy was authorized to draw 5 million gallons a day from our aquifer. In order to get rid of the fuel tainted water from its Red Hill shaft, the military had to get the proper permits from the state health department to discharge that amount into the Halava stream. The concern is about the effect of all that water on the environment. The military says it will be a slow and low flow to minimize impact on the storm drains and the stream itself. The flushing began Saturday afternoon, and the military says it's moving cautiously so it's not yet filtering at full capacity. On Friday, the officials from the military, Environmental Protection Agency, and the Department of Health were on hand to show how they plan to begin this necessary step. You know, we took a tour of the Red Hill pump area, and a lot of it is trial and error, using giant tanks, using a granulated activated charcoal system to clear the contaminants so it's safe enough to be flushed into Pearl Harbor. We hear from Travis Hilton. He's with the Naval Facilities Pacific Environmental Division. It's important to understand that this is a, a first important step. Um, we started the recovery of the well with uh, removal of contaminants directly from the well, from the water surface through skimming and absorbance. And this is a process that will give us some time in making sure that we're able to counter the potential for contaminants migrating away from the site. So this isn't the end of the uh, remediation processes. This is to get us enough time to make sure that we don't have uh, contamination migrating off-site. As we're doing that, we'll be monitoring the groundwater. We have a network of uh, monitoring wells and we're working with the Department of Health and the Commission on Water Resource Management to uh, locate where it's the best place to put more monitoring wells so that we can uh, be able to have a better situational awareness of uh, where the contaminants may be in the nearby water table. So that, again, the objective of this first step is to counter the potential for uh, contaminants to migrate off-site. And as we collect more data, we will develop remediation strategies, not just for the groundwater, but for the unsaturated zone uh, where the uh, fuels may be hung up in the rock formation. And, you know, in this early stage, state officials will be continuously sampling to see how well the plan is working and how often it will need to change the filters to clear out the petroleum products in the water. It's expecting the arrival of additional laboratory equipment to help get results faster from the water samples. So far, the Navy has put in divers to try and contain the pollutants. It's used absorbent material to try and soak up as much as it can off the surface of the water where the fuel was ponding. The flush water is being discharged into the stream in a concrete canal just behind the Halaba prison. It runs behind the state animal quarantine station and then down behind the Halaba industrial park. It goes past the stadium through residential neighborhoods before going into Pearl Harbor, just between the boat launch area of the Pearl Harbor Arizona Memorial and what is known as Hotel Pier. If you happen to notice something unusual in the stream area, you are being asked to report it to the state. Here's the Department of Health's Matt Carano. You should not see any oil sheens in any of our streams, period. If you do see any oil streams in this stream or anything else, please contact the Department of Health. We have people to respond from um, to any type of oil or release event, not just this one. The expected treatment from this should produce no sheen, no plume, no extra turbidity. And if you do see it, and we live in a social media, cell phone, camera world, please let us know. There are, the plan that's public has contact information in it. You also have our regular contact information that's 24 hours available um, for any water pollution issue, I think that folks know. And, and if you do see something like that, please report it. The Department of Health's permit does not allow for pollution into the stream. Nothing that should cause a sheen again, or an odor, or a fish kill, or impacts to any of the wildlife or people walking through it. That's the whole point of Department of Health's permit. I want everybody to know that the Department of Health takes a healthy skepticism, not necessarily pessimism, but skepticism to everything that may impact our water resources. But the urgency of having to remove and create a capture zone from in the aquifer to prevent any further migration of the fuel or degraded products is a great urgency. I think it's very intuitive for people to understand that the first thing you do when you spill something is to try to collect it up as much as you can before it gets anywhere else. That was Matt Carano with the State Health Department, which just issued a permit to the military to begin mass flushing of filtered tainted water from our water system.
This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. We are ready to welcome the Year of the Tiger on Chinese New Year, just as the first family welcomed a green-eyed feline, Popoki, to the White House last week. The two-year-old gray and white tabby started trending online after First Lady Jill Biden tweeted Friday morning, Meet Willow followed by heart emojis. According to a news release, Willow made quite an impression on Dr. Biden in 2020 when she jumped up on the stage and interrupted her remarks during the campaign stop. Seeing their immediate bond, the owner of the farm knew that Willow belonged with Dr. Biden. In the modern era, the Fords, the Carters, the Clintons, and the Bushes all had pet cats. According to White House historians, only about a dozen feline inhabitants, though, have ever made it into the Luxurious comforts at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. So, for today's quiz, who brought Tiger the Cat to live at the White House? Think you know? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com. Information and technology, if it's one thing that the pandemic has showed us, is that the state's IT workforce and systems are in serious need of a boost. So what are we doing about it? Well, HPR reporter Casey Harlow joins us this morning to talk about it. Good morning, Casey. Morning, yes. So technology, right? It's been discussed for years, if not decades, and building this tech workforce has been a priority for many administrations and many state lawmakers, but a new study from SMS Research, which was supported by the UH Community Colleges and the Harold K. L. Castle Foundation, found there's still a huge shortage of workers in this field. And here's Senator Donovan Dela Cruz kind of like summing up the frustration, I would say, of coming up short a little bit with this effort. We've talked about this for years, about creating a IT workforce about making sure that we're globally competitive, and we floundered. And to kind of back that up, right, the study found that in 2020, there was nearly 13,000 job openings within IT, uh, within cybersecurity, within uh, networking, within everything that comes with the tech sector, right? But only about 3,800 people were hired at that point, and this is something that hasn't really been improved since 2020. And here's Senator Dela Cruz again. The Ways and Means Committee over the past summer uh, went to the different islands. We went to the Big Island, we went to Maui, and we went to Kauai. And in every place we went, employers told us that they needed more employees, potential employees in IT, maybe cyber, database, networking, you name it. Uh, the problem was that because Hawaii's workforce or it had a limited pool, they brought people in from the mainland and on, on the neighbor islands, they had to bring in people from Oahu. So the effort now is trying to boost the local workforce and trying to um, have more local people, like become globally competitive to, you know, not only get high uh, paying jobs here in the islands, but maybe also going elsewhere and finding uh, careers that would actually benefit them a lot. And so it, it the study did find that, you know, um, it does provide a higher wage, nearly $40 an hour, 
compared to the average of 1553 an hour. And uh, this industry is expected to grow uh, all sectors like the cybersecurity within uh, IT information, uh, networking, and all that, another 7% here in the islands. And that demand's only going to grow. And if you think about it, there's a lot of uh, businesses that need IT now. Uh, it's banks. It's, gosh, whatever business that you're thinking of, you know, at this point, the need for IT professionals is going to keep growing from here. So how exactly is there going to be a boost in this workforce? So the study made several recommendations. One of them was improving the communication between the private sector and the educational sector, because what they're finding is that a lot of these um, businesses, a lot of uh, potential applicants, don't have the necessary uh, certificates or work experience needed to get these jobs. And there was a little bit of, um, not to say frustration, but to say, you know, there's a little bit of a shortage here where it's, you know, employers are looking for applicants that need uh, the right kind of experience, and employers may not know exactly what they want at this point either. Well, you know, I know that some of the IT folks were saying that uh, our young people, you know, might be a good idea to go out and get, I don't know, like 10 years experience, you know, working uh, somewhere else, you know, and then you can come back home, you know, and then they bring that that experience with them to help us. Exactly. But uh, I guess another on the flip side of that, right, is what will entice them to come back. Because then again, if you go abroad and you get, uh, you know, a job in that sector and you have experience, uh, how do companies uh, compete? Uh, And I've heard uh, from, I interviewed David Takeyama, who's with Oceanit. He's the IT director. Um, He's had an open position for about a year looking for someone. It's a senior position, but uh, what he's finding is that the mainland applicants don't necessarily have fit that corporate culture. And uh, if there are people who went away, got that experience and want to come back, again, it's the whole competing with the salary and the cost of living and wanting to be here in Hawaii as well. So uh, really quickly, what the ch- what this uh, is going to come out of this study is the Chamber of Commerce of Hawaii in partnership with UH is going to start this new program called Leap Start. And they're trying to bridge that gap between the employers and the educators and then possibly raise more awareness to schools and and career fairs and things uh, to get uh, students and other people interested in IT because this is definitely going to be growing from here on out. Yeah, the the need is certainly something that was highlighted during this pandemic, absolutely. Yep, and Chamber of Commerce is currently seeking partners with this program right now. Uh, no definitive start date at this point, but this is just the start of, you know, the ongoing discussion to boost the workforce here. Right, attract our brainy kids that have gone off to work elsewhere and bring them back home, and hopefully the pay is competitive. Yeah, exactly. All right, well, thanks so much, Casey. Thank you. We've been talking with HPR reporter Casey Harlow. To read his stories, go to hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Beach House Restaurant on Kauai. Now hiring multiple front and back of house positions. Application by searching the Beach House Kauai. At any given time, Hawaii has a week or less of blood available locally from donors. This critical resource is in constant short supply. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show to learn all about donating blood, plasma, platelets, and more. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from HomeWorks Construction, a full-service design-build general contractor with an in-house architectural staff specializing in custom homes and full-home remodels, homeworksconstruction.com.
Honolulu Civil Beat has been tracking the driver shortage due to the pandemic and how it's been affecting our public schools. Education reporter Suvan Lee joins us this morning with the latest developments. Hi, Suvan. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Good. So lots of uh, developments since the last time we chatted about this. Well, there there's been developments in the sense that it hasn't really improved. Um, that's what's going on with the school bus situation for Hawaii Public Schools. As you as you just mentioned, um, there's been a driver shortage ever since the start of the school year because of the impacts of the pandemic. And the DOE is 15% down um, its driver pool. So it's about 100 drivers short and when it has 650 bus routes operating on any given day. So right now, schools are seeing their bus routes um, canceled. They're seeing them suspended due to lack of drivers. And that's leaving many kids stranded, unable to come to school. And you learned that uh, they suspended a number of routes last week. Sure, they did. They they suspended about 30 routes. Um, and most of these impacted uh, Hawaii Island, especially the remote rural areas. So I spoke to the principal at Honoka'a High and Intermediate and you know, she was talking about 60% of her school population relying on the school bus to get to school. So they, many of these kids have been home for 20 days or more so far this school year. And in Hawaii, chronic absenteeism is defined as missing 15 days or more. So they're already at that level. And that um, reflects negatively upon upon the student and the school for no fault of their own. So it's, it's caused quite a con- quandary out there, and um, they're, they're scrambling to come up with solutions like relying on parents to drop their kids off or even teachers to take time out of their school day to go pick their kids up. That's amazing. I mean, they're going above and beyond just to get the kids in the classroom. That's right. And in an already stressful environment where they're having to um, take on additional responsibil- responsibility, this is just one more to add to their plate. And then you learned that they're trying to come up with some other type of uh, – or they're trying to tweak the attendance system so that there's an option to be able to note when it, you're, they're absent due to, you know, no transportation? Sure. So as I as I had mentioned, um, you know, transportation being um, a reason for an absence, it's not um, – there's currently no code in the – Um, computerized system in the DOE to uh, indicate that a student has missed class because they couldn't get to school for lack of a ride. So according to a DOE spokesman, he said that they're talking internally about how to add that to the menu options so that this is not considered an unexcused absence, similar to how quarantining um, was added as an excused absence back in September because of all the cases of having to isolate at home due to positive of exposure at school. So this is just one of the many, you know, um, indications of how the pandemic has really changed the way that uh, school operations now have to be sort of logged and uh, entered into the data system because there are so many um, variables now to a a student having a missed class. And I want to emphasize, especially for kids in these remote rural areas where they depend on the school bus to get to school, unlike more urban parts of Honolulu. And you reported that the DOE also reached out to the National Guard to see if they could get help over there. They did. The the DOE had uh, proposed some short-term solutions to get driver shortages back on track, and they did reach out to the National Guard. Now, apparently, because you need a commercial driver's license to operate a school bus, these requirements to get licensed, it's going to take some time. It's going to cost some fees, and that apparently wasn't a feasible option. Um, They had also talked about reimbursing parents' mileage, uh, supplying schools with small passenger vans that don't require a commercial driver's license to operate Mm. in order to transport these kids. It seems like that is uh, one of those short-term fixes that is gaining the most traction as far as relying on these school passenger vans. Um, uh, Some principals had talked to me about actually relying on this and In fact, teachers operating these buses, these small buses, to go uh, transport the kids. But but again, it's 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 a it's not a permanent solution. And what the DOE really needs is long-term, full-time drivers, which are in short supply here and everywhere else around the country, too. Might I add? Yeah, and uh, you know, I know they've got the vendors. You know, Roberts Hawaii. I think there's Gomes. 
that uh, that uh, you know has a contract with the DOE as well. But a lot of these companies are offering bonuses, right, just to kind of attract people uh, because they they yeah. need workers. They're trying to do whatever they can to lure drivers. Yes, you're right. The DOE employs private bus contractors to supply the staff. So it's incumbent upon these businesses to go find these drivers. And, yeah, they're trying. Yeah, and uh, we're we're not through the school year yet. But uh, we'll keep our fingers crossed that the situation improves. But thanks so much, Subhan. Thank you. That was reporter Subhan Lee with today's Reality Check. You can read her story about this at civilbeat.org. You know, PBS aired a new program of this month entitled Our New Normal, How Teens Are Redefining School Life. The hour-long special is part of its student reporting labs and spotlights the next generation of journalists as they report on hot-button issues impacting young people today, like mental health, free speech, trans students' rights, and the pandemic's impact on education. It was co-hosted by... Kate Nakamura, a junior at Kauai High School, an aspiring journalist. The Conversations, Russell Subiano sat down with Nakamura to find out what the new normal looks like for local high school students. How did this opportunity come to you? So I was reached out to by Elise at the Student Reporting Labs with this opportunity, and I just sent in, you know, an application with a quick interview and me just saying a couple lines to the camera, and I sent it in. And I was crossing my fingers and hoping and hoping, and I was so excited that I got the opportunity to host this special. That's great. I love that they chose someone from Kauai as well. It would have been very easy to choose an Oahu student, but I love that uh, a neighbor island student was, was chosen. You know, on our show, we've talked to many education leaders and teachers during the pandemic, but this is one of the few times that we're hearing from an actual student Can you describe what this new normal looks like for high school students? Yeah, of course. Going back to school was, it was definitely something to get used to, you know, we're going back to a normal schedule, which is all of our classes with all the students, extracurriculars and all of that, but also having to weave in these rules and mandates. So it's been interesting to kind of deal with the mixture of the two. And it's also been a really great learning experience to kind of like be flexible and be open to change. Do you think that being flexible, being adaptable is is a, an important skill for anyone to learn? Do you feel like it helps helps get you through some particular tough times? Yes, I definitely think so. Being able to be flexible and adapt to change It has definitely helped me through, you know, the pandemic and going back to school and just being open to change, which can be tough sometimes. I can attest to that. But being flexible and adapting to change will definitely, you know, help throughout life. Now, high school is meant to be a place where students go to get their academic education. But we can't escape the fact that there's there's also an important social component to the experience. One of the themes that seems to flow through all of the segments in that PBS special was reassuring teens that they're not alone, that they're not going through this alone. Do you think the pandemic has drawn students closer together or exacerbated the isolation? I think this pandemic has definitely brought teenagers together. You know, we're all going through these big changes with the pandemic and, you know, it is tough. But it's always good to know that there's someone else, you know, that's experiencing the same things as you that you can confide in and talk to and share your experiences. And sometimes it's validated, which makes you feel better about what you're going through and that you're not alone. Kauai is a is a small island and a a very tight knit community. Is there anything unique to the experience that high school students on Kauai went through during the pandemic, as opposed to maybe something that you saw on TV or read in the newspaper about experiences in larger cities? I think here in Kauai, as you said, we're very tight knit and it's almost like a family. So I think here we're extra cautious because we do see each other as family and we don't want our family members to get sick and get COVID and have to deal with you know, maybe some side effects or isolation and all of that. 
So I think because we're so close here on Kauai, we take extra care for each other like we're family. I have a lot of family in Kauai, and that's always the sense that I get whenever I visit is is a really tight-knit community. Distance learning has been a source of debate amongst parents and educators. Some of the arguments invoke the financial costs and question what the appropriate setting for education is. From what you've experienced and observed, how has distance learning both helped and harmed student learning? I think it helps, you know, students to work at their own pace and to get the help that they need from teachers if they can and just be in an environment to work in sometimes that's more comfortable. Like for me, I like working from home and doing all my work there, but also at the same time, being by yourself and not in a classroom environment, it kind of stops like motivation that would usually be there to get work done and to study and do all these things because we're not in a usual classroom environment that would provide that kind of motivation. It it does seem to be kind of a case-by-case thing. Do you get the sense that it's a case-by-case thing across the board as well? There may be some students who thrive in one situation as opposed to the other. Yeah, I definitely think so. For me, I did fine with distance learning, but, you know, talking to friends and even my younger brother, some people have trouble focusing and, as you say, procrastinating on their work and getting things done. So dealing with that motivation to kind of continue doing well in school gets kind of lost during distance learning sometimes. So, yeah, I definitely think it's a case-by-case thing, too. Another theme that I observed in the special is this idea that students want the freedom to express their individual and unique selves and to voice their perspectives and what's important to them. Why does it seem that that's more important today than it has been in the past? It's a good question. Um, I think, especially now with all the changes in society and we're kind of as young people expressing our voices more because we see these changes that are happening and sometimes they're not stuff that we're for and it's we're kind of against and we want to speak up for what we believe is right. So being able to have more of a voice and more freedom kind of translates, you know, expression of who we really are. So I think going through these times where change is constantly happening we kind of have more freedom to express ourselves. Do you feel a lot more responsible or or a lot more anxiety about what kind of world you'll be entering into by the time it's time for you to live in the adult world? Yeah, sometimes I do just thinking about my future and all the things that, you know, lay ahead. But I'm also at the same time excited to see what, my generation and younger generations, what we're going to do to kind of fix those problems and make it better and create change that will benefit everyone. That's good to hear. That's good. And it kind of leads into my next question. There seems to be a growing distrust of media across the country, yet there are still plenty of high school students interested in pursuing a career in journalism. How do you foresee helping to reduce or reverse that distrust? For me personally, I love telling stories and investigating things. And I think being able to start learning about journalism now and being able to work with organizations like PBS Hawaii's Hikino and PBS NewsHour's Student Reporting Labs and learning about, you know, what's how to get to the bottom of things, how to find real facts, real news, and how to, you know, get information from trusted sources and from the source itself through interviews. And being able to learn about all this stuff now kind of is helping me and like other people who want to go into journalism to kind of work towards being better in our future. It's encouraging to hear that this next generation of of journalists, that you guys sound undeterred and you guys sound like you're going to take the steps to to ensure that that the reporting is factual and you're, and you're being a journalist in, in a, in a quality and a, in a genuine way. This is my last question. And I thought it would be kind of fun to do throughout the special. There were several adults who presented a letter that they wrote to their middle school self. And so I thought it'd be fun if we, we kind of did this too. 
I know that if I wrote a letter to my middle school self, I'd say, go ahead, be proud to be a nerd, because eventually nerds do become the mainstream. And I know that you're not that far removed from middle school, but what would you say to your middle school self? I think I would tell my middle school self, you know, to keep dreaming and to keep working hard because in middle school, I knew I wanted to go into journalism, but I was kind of wondering how I would get there from middle school. I was in media production classes, but I was wondering how I could work harder to get there. And I think I would just tell my middle school self to keep dreaming big and to keep working hard. I like that. I like that a lot. Thank you very much for your time. I really enjoyed talking to you and and hearing your perspective. Yeah, thank you so much. That was Kate Nakamura, a junior at Koei High School and co-host of the recent PBS NewsHour special, Our New Normal, How Teens Are Redefining School Life. You can watch it on PBS NewsHour's YouTube channel. It also airs on PBS Hawaii this Saturday at 7 p.m. Look for links on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Did you know that there's a space telescope orbiting the skies looking for signs of alien worlds? It's called TESS, T-E-S-S, and has already identified over 5,000 objects of interest. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence with the details. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny planet. Also, things we can try and spot in the sky, and all of it thanks to astronomer Christopher Phillips. We've got him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be back. So this week, stargazers look out for Jupiter in the western sky after sunset. It will be visible till around 8 p.m. The moon this week is emerging from the new moon phase and will be a mere crescent during the evening. And this week, you've got an update on a uh, space telescope mission we don't often hear about. Yes, while eyes around the world have been locked on the journey of the James Webb Space Telescope, which has recently arrived at its observing location, there has been another revolutionary space telescope quietly laboring away in orbit around the Earth. Its name is TESS, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. Its mission is to scour the sky for signs of alien worlds. And so far, it has discovered over 5,000 objects of interest. Wow, that's a bunch of progress. And I remember you talking about that a ways back. Bring us up to speed when that was launched and stuff like that. Well, TESS was launched back in 2018. So it's into a solid three years of hunting for planets around other stars. So far, it has covered over 85% of the visible sky and has also revisited previous areas of interest in its relentless hunt for exoplanets. And on those objects of interest, how many have been confirmed to be planets? Well, so far, only 176 Mm. are confirmed exoplanets. The number would be a lot higher, but candidates from tests require manual vetting by a human and also follow-up observations from ground-based observatories. As you know, time on those bad boys is extremely limited. You got that right. So you got to use a pretty big uh, device to get an idea of what these places are really like. Yes, unfortunately, TESS itself does not have the ability to classify these worlds since it's a survey satellite designed to look at very wide areas of sky. It's basically flagging potential planets for us and saying, hey, folks, I found something interesting. You better come look and bring a bigger boat. <laughs> We're going to need a bigger <laughs> boat. I like it. Christopher Phillips and uh, another fascinating stargazer. Very insightful. Thank you. You're all welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Keep stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the new Honouliuli Middle School in East Kapolei, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. In today's quiz, we explore the history of our nation's capital, specifically the history of cats 
pet popoki at the White House, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. You know, on Friday, the world was introduced to Willow, a two-year-old, green-eyed, gray-and-white tabby, the latest furry addition to the Biden household. There hasn't been a first cat since 2009, and that was India, the all-black short hair who belonged to President George W. Bush and his family. For today's quiz, we asked you to tell us who Tiger the Cat belonged to. Well, it was almost a century ago that President Calvin Coolidge and his wife, Grace, welcomed an active, striped, short-haired kitten to their large collection of animals at the White House. The young feline made headlines in March of 1924 when the New York Times wrote, Coolidge's Tomcat leaves his home, so the White House takes up Hunt for Tiger by appeal over the radio. After the public was made aware of the situation, Tiger was located and returned home. We had no winners today. Meow. <laughs> but that's today's quiz. If you have one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Outrigger Hotels and Resorts, committed to guest and employee safety, while also featuring the Malama Hawaii Experience, offering hands-on cultural learning in Malama Ka'aina, caring for the land. Outrigger.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Steve McIntosh, author of The Presence of the Infinite. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about the spiritual experience of beauty, truth, and goodness. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. On the eve of the Chinese New Year, we get you in the mood to celebrate the Year of the Tiger, and so we pause to consider dim sum. We turn our attention to a local cookbook just released entitled Yum Yum Cha. It was a book put together by Lynette Lotom. She's the author of two other Chinese cookbooks, but this one was a little different. It's a nod to her teacher, Muriel Miura Kaminaka, who listeners may remember on the Gas Company cooking show. Here's Lynette. She is probably the grand dame of Hawaii cookbooks. She wrote probably more than 30 cookbooks, and she was a home economist and loved to teach. She had a TV show at one time. She just wrote so many books, and she was my first editor. So she edited my first book called A Chinese Kitchen, and she was a wonderful person who you know, was gentle in, you know, instead of saying, Lynette, you're so stupid. Why are you writing it this way? She would just say, oh, what about this way of saying it? And I would go, of course, that's better. So I learned she had a gentle way of teaching me how to do recipes. And she always talked about her next book was going to be a dim sum book that she wanted to write for her two grandchildren, because she and the grandchildren, that was their thing to go and eat dim sum. There's something so, so comforting about dim sum. Well, I just think it's a social thing. So, you know, I called the book Yum Yum Cha because Cantonese-speaking people won't say, let's go eat dim sum. They say, Yum Cha, you want to drink tea with me? And I guess that's, you know, more polite way, right? You're saying, Catherine, let's go drink tea, but really you're going to be eating everything in sight. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the polite way, yum cha. So I just did a play on that yum yum cha. So I took over her notes. And I think it was harder than starting from scratch because I respected her so much. I wanted to make sense of why she wanted certain recipes in or what she wanted in. So that that was a challenge. But it was wonderful for me to learn more about all these things that I eat all the time. I mean, I, I loved dim sum, so it was fun for me to really learn about it more in an academic way. Well, I just saw my favorites in the first couple of favorites <laughs> in the book, and there is so much to learn. The one that I had my eyes on was the uh, bean curd wrap. And that everybody, every restaurant in Hawaii makes it differently. It is 
made from soybeans, you know, like tofu, but the texture is nice. In Japanese, they call it um, yuba. It's like a, you know, a tougher texture. And people will fill it with meats or shredded vegetables, but um, everybody makes it a different way. But I didn't realize how complicated it was because it's almost like you wrap it, then you deep fry it, then you braise it in a sauce. So, you know, that's how you get that wonderful crisp texture, but it's simmered in sauce, so very tasty. I think that's one of the most popular ones in Hawaii. Now, I compiled the Hawaii Top 10, but I think it would be different in different cities depending on what part of Canton you are from. Uh, But internationally, everybody feels hargau or the shrimp dumplings are the number one that everybody has to order, you know. So, but it's very, you could have fights over this. (laughs) Yes. And, And so do you have particular favorites yourself? Oh, yes. I like I make char siu bao, but it's not my favorite, I guess, because it's bigger and it's not as delicate. I love like lobak go, which is the grated turnip. And they put a little meat in that and they fry it. They steam it first and then pan fry it. So when you go to eat dim sum and, you know, if you're going to one where they still have the cart, when they're frying things, that's one of them I always ask for. It's called lobak go, like a turnip cake. So the first one in the book is the pork hash. Yes, I think so. I mean, I I feel like that's universal, that people just love pork hash. And Chinese, we call it siumai, or, you know, it supposedly looks like a little money bag. Right. So, you know, Chinese, they always like the good luck, too. So you're eating something that looks like money. <laughs> and mm-hmm. dumplings, they're they're small bites. And, right. you know, you can have just a variety of different things in one sitting. So I think that that's that's what makes it so delightful. And actually writing this book made me realize it is great to go out to a restaurant <laughs> because when I make the dim sum at home, maybe... In one day, I might make two types, right? But when you go out, you can get 10 types if you want because you just want a bite or two, right? So the all dim sum is made on basically three decisions. What filling you choose, what covering you have, and how you're going to cook it. So, for example, Jin Dui, what you might be familiar with, is like a mochi rice, sticky rice, um, and the filling could be black bean or red bean or coconut. And it's deep fried. You'll see those deep fried balls that then we roll in sesame seeds. So when it's sweet, it's called jindui. But if you have a salty, savory filling, it's called ham sui gok. So that's something I forgot about. I had eaten it when I was small, but I had completely forgotten that many of these, there's a sweet version and a salty version. And then what about soup dumplings? Because we've heard a lot about that. Yes, that is northern. Isn't that interesting? So now when you go to eat dim sum, people want that. But it wasn't, dim sum is classically southern Chinese. So you'll say it's Cantonese kind of food. But northern Northern Chinese have invented the soup dumplings. And that you can make. It's basically you're making a aspect or jello from soup broth and then putting it in a dumpling and then steaming it. And then when you steam it, that jelly or jello turns to liquid, right? So it's Ah, soup. That's but the that's secret. Very difficult to make in that, you know, you have to steam it the right time. And you have to serve it immediately because once it breaks, you know, all the soup goes out of that dumpling. Well, I just, those are delicious, too. <laughs> I just know my daughter said she just uh, discovered those in New York City. And when she yes. came back home, she said, oh, there's a place that's opened up in Waikiki that has soup dumplings. <laughs> yes, yes. But isn't that funny? I didn't realize that our Chinese food was so from one village of 
Canton. So other places around the country will have many different varieties. And especially now, there'll be Shanghainese specialties or spicier specialties from the north. But traditionally, southern southern China was the place for dim sum. So when you've traveled and you've visited Chinatown in different uh, cities, when you pick up a menu, I mean, how challenging is that? No, it is hard. I mean, of course, you know, Hawaii Chinese, we come from peasant stock, right? I mean, if you were rich and had servants, you would not come to work in the plantation fields, right? So a lot of the things I say are peasant talk, and I didn't know that. So I did ask, I love chicken feet, you know, the braised chicken feet. Mm -hmm. And in New York, I asked for, literally, I said chicken feet. And I didn't realize that that is so low class, they didn't even understand me. Wow. Because they call it Phoenix Claws. Wow. Right? It's like a fancy name, so you don't have to say you're eating feet. (laughs) 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 And I didn't know that, you know, I was... I hadn't been trained, you know, the euphemisms, right? You're not saying, oh, I'm eating feet. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is and amazing. And like um, the rice roll that people like. Um, the, we call it look fun, where you use rice flour or different flours and you steam it. And it's a white, thick roll. Um, we call it look fun in Hawaii. And other places on the mainland, they all call it whore fun. So there's just some dialect differences that Hawaii people, we say a certain thing, right? And even like we'll go and we'll say, oh, we want manapua, and that's charsubao. Or we want pepiao, and that's the half moon, right? But on the mainland, they'd call it fangguo or gokjai. But we would say pepiao, right, ear. <laughs> and, you know... All the baked treats, you know, like the baked manapua, you know, I, I see yeah. here that you, yeah. you have a whole thing with Royal Kitchen because I discovered the baked manapua and it was just like, oh, you know, it, it's just delightful to learn more about it. Right. They have like sausages. You, they even put in the Chinese um, lap trung, which is the sweet Chinese sausage. And they have chicken bao. They have all these different flavors. So I love it there because they have to have the symbols. On the outside of what it is, like how many dots or is there a face or something? So so you can tell what's what so you're not like playing Russian roulette when you get a whole tray. (laughs) You have some kind of coating. And and you do cover, you know, the the sweets. People love, like I think one of the top ten dim sum that people expect are those little tarts, the custard tarts called Don Tot. They're mini tarts. And I always thought... um, Hawaii people just love custard pie. And I didn't realize the basis of those tarts is Portugal. Macau people would have these custard tarts from the Portuguese. And it was so close to Hong Kong, so they copied it. It became a Chinese dish, but really the roots are in Portugal. Well, now when you were putting this all together channeling Muriel. Uh, I mean, did did she have favorites that you recall? Yes. She loved, like, certain certain things, like the noodles. She said, oh, she would write, oh, my grandchildren love this, you know, kind of gone lo min, you know, like the dry kind of noodle. And it is a dim sum cookbook, but at many restaurants, you know, people will order a few dim sum, but they'll order noodles or vegetables, right? So they're not the mini bites, but at a dim sum restaurant, you'll feel like, oh, maybe I do want to have the rice porridge jook, or maybe I want to have um, certain kind of noodles. So she wanted to include that. So I tried to honor her wishes and include some restaurants. And she included a lot of stir fry sauces. Yes. And and I was going to mention that because you have a section just on the different sauces, which is wonderful. Mm -hmm. And they're very easy and just it helps. To just change it up. Sometimes you cook the same things and you just can look at a book and go, let me try that. And if you like the taste, it's good. But I have learned that food is so personal. So some people will tell me, oh, Lynette, I hated that recipe. And I'll say, I'm so sorry. That's my favorite. (laughs) Because food, you know, it's just very, it's up to your taste, right? Like, do you like it sweeter? Do you like chili peppers or not? Um, So I just think recipes are a guide. 
And then you just make it how you like it, you know, and write down how you change the recipe. Well, I'm going to try uh, the stuffed bitter melon. <laughs> oh, God. I love bitter melon, you know. So, and, and supposedly it's good for you. So. <laughs> All right, so bitter melon and bean curd good, wrap good. Are, are the two that I've got my eyes uh, on. Yeah, and and the, all the fillings you can reuse in different ways, like the filling for one ton or pot stickers, you could use to stuff eggplant or stuff bitter melon. You can use it for anything. You know, find a stuffing that you like, a filling, and you can use it in all different ways. So that's what's kind of fun. Okay, you hungry yet? <laughs> that was Lynette Lodom, who, along with inspiration from Miro Miro Kamanaka, who we lost this past year, compiled a cookbook entitled Yum Yum Cha. We will have links on our website about the book later today. And so as we have our tea and enjoy our Chinese dumplings, remember Muriel, a tiger in the kitchen. That is it for us today. Tomorrow marks the first day of February. It also happens to be Invasive Species Month. It's the start of celebrations for the Chinese New Year. What are your hopes for the Year of the Tiger? What are some of your fondest memories of celebrating the Lunar New Year growing up? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. And miss something? You want to listen back to something you heard today? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. Thank you.